You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. And okay, so it didn't happen the way we thought. Or maybe some of you thought it would happen exactly the way it played out. It didn't happen the way I wanted to see it. And it's exhausting. And we're worn out. I have one friend who told me she thinks she finished a whole bottle of CBD oil. P.S. I didn't know you could drink that stuff just like that in that form. Other friends showed pictures of their empty wine bottles. You know, a resolution will happen. I am recording this the day after November 4th. And by the time you hear this at the earliest, November 6th, maybe we'll know who will be the next president. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. This year has been the Annus Horribilis. That's Latin for horrible year. It's what the Queen said when there was some royal scandal one year. I think it was maybe when Princess Diana died. That was an Annus Horribilis. This is an Annus Horribilis for everybody. Everybody, maybe except for Borat. But If there's one thing 2020 has taught us, it's patience. We just have to be patient. The process will probably work and we will probably have a new president. And if Joe Biden is our next president, I know for sure that he is a man who likes to work with Republicans as well as Democrats. He was quite famous as a senator for collaborating with Republicans on bills, and he certainly did that as vice president. And hopefully we'll all learn to play nicely, as we told our children to do in nursery school. So patience, my friends. And That brings us to this week's guest, who has written a new book on a case that is long simmering, and you have to you have to have, as my father would call it, Zitzfleisch, which is German for being able to sit for a long time. He used to talk about Zitzfleisch in regard to stocks. If you wanted to really invest in the stock market, you couldn't be nervous and you had to be able to sit tight. Barry Levine is a reporter whose new book is The Spider Inside the Criminal Web of Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine. That's how you say it, Ghislaine Maxwell. And he started by researching a book on Donald Trump, and there is no way to research a book about Trump. It's His last book is called All the President's Women. There's no way you research that book and don't come across Jeffrey Epstein. So he's been aware of Epstein for a long time. He has very deep interviews with some people. It's very juicy. The book has a lot of graphic details what these poor girls who were basically sex slaves had to do. And, you know, we were talking about Nexium last time or the week before. These people who don't even, you know, they don't look like Tony Robbins. They don't have this massive masculine appeal. In The Spider, someone refers to Jeffrey Epstein as having negative charisma, and yet they get people to do things for them because essentially they're evil. And Epstein's evil accomplice, Glenn Maxwell, is in prison in Brooklyn. Her trial's supposed to happen next year. Will it? Hmm. Anyway, Barry Levine knows all about it, and he will be with us momentarily. But first, the five things that make my life better. And let me just tell you, this was not an easy week to write this list. And my list is very 
fundamental, and short, but it's honest. Number one, my family. Number two, my health, as far as I know. Number three, my old friends. Number four, my new friends. I actually have made some really great friends in the last two years, and I didn't know that was possible. And number five, the resistance. Don't go away. Barry Levine will be right with us. It's Lisa Birnbach. My guest is Barry Levine, the author of The Spider, Inside the Criminal Web of Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. And before I welcome him, I just want to tell you all that Barry and I have spoken. We've never met before, but his previous book was called All the President's Women. And I was interviewed for that because of my friend E. Jean Carroll. Good day to you, Barry. Good day. It's... uh... It's quite a time in our history. That's all what I have to say. What a time to be alive. Yes. Yes. You know what? I should tell our listeners that we are recording this on November 4th, the day after Election Day, which I guess we're now going to call Election Week or something, right? Hopefully it's not Election Month. Right. And we probably both feel kind of disappointed, shocked, exhausted. Yeah, I mean, I got a tremendous amount of Twitter traffic in the past two weeks since the book came out because I posted an exclusive photo of Donald Trump introducing his young children, Ivanka and Eric, to Jeffrey Epstein. It's a black and white photo. It was taken here in New York back in the 90s at the opening of the Hard Rock Cafe in Times Square. And it just shows the relationship between Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein. Of course, Trump in recent years has completely tried to distance himself from Jeffrey Epstein, but their relationship was extremely close. And here I have as proof a photo of him introducing his young kids to the predator. Yes, I've seen that picture. Would it be okay if we post it on our website? Sure, absolutely. Good. So the picture of Donald Trump introducing his young children to a pedophile, Jeffrey Epstein, is empirical evidence of that, and it will be on lisabernbach.com. So let's get right into it. Sure. Jeffrey Epstein, you talk about his very humble roots in Coney Island, and you talk about his progression to more and more and more powerful people. But what was the genius that he had that these powerful people were so willing to trust him. What was it? Because he sure looked like a nebbish to me. He was a grifter. He was a huckster. You have to understand, though, that his brain worked like a computer. And while he went to Bear Stearns and didn't know the difference between a stock and a bond, right? he, he was able to literally see numbers on a piece of paper and in his mind, calculate ways to get tax credits out of that. And he was a genius in that sense. So very wealthy individuals turned to him when they learned that he could make them money. 
And what Jeffrey Epstein did was not only did he make them money, but Jeffrey Epstein would steal money from Mm -hmm. these clients. He hooked himself up with arms dealers like Adnan Adnan Khashoggi, Sir Douglas Lease. Epstein made a great deal of money because he was also willing to skirt the law right on the line. This was an individual that, of course, had been booted out of Bear Stearns because of financial improprieties that were raised by auditors and so forth. And Epstein moved into his private business. And in his private business, he learned bribery. He learned embezzlement. He he talked a great game. He was literally right out of the Coney Island boardwalk sideshow. He was a different kind of freak. A different kind of freak. And these wealthy figures would allow him to move their money around, and he would steal from them. He stole from Les Wexner much more, I believe, than the meager figures of $40 million that had been put forth. I believe he was stealing from Leslie Wexner right at the beginning of their relationship. So, Okay, so we have to get to Les Wexner because it feels like, for those who haven't followed this story closely, Les Wexner, who founded The Limited and owned Victoria's Secret... It's called L Brands now. I don't know what exists of it now, but he was an older man, a bachelor. He met Jeffrey Epstein and took his billions and instantly entrusted them to this guy. And that doesn't make sense. I have friends in the fashion business who think that Epstein and Wexner were romantically involved. But that wouldn't explain why he gave over a $20 million townhouse as a gift. It doesn't explain why he gave Jeffrey Epstein a mansion in Ohio. It doesn't explain any of that. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot to that relationship that we still don't know. I can tell you this, in reporting on the book, we received very aggressive legal counsel from Mr. Wexner's side. I can state that, of course, authorities have not charged or suspect Leslie Wexner of any wrongdoing. Leslie Wexner says he is a victim of Jeffrey Epstein, like so many other individuals that he took advantage of. But there are a lot of questions that I raise in the book, in particular to events that took place involving young women at Leslie Wexner's estate in Ohio. Yeah, the Uh, farmer story, right? Yes, the the story of uh, Maria Farmer, who was an art student that Jeffrey Epstein brought to Ohio to work at Wexner's home and so forth. There's a very specific incident there that took place in which predatory uh, actions and criminality took part on Jeffrey Epstein's part involving this young woman, Leslie Wexner's security detail at his compound in Ohio basically kept her and she used the words hostage for several hours until she was able to call her father, who was then able to get out there and basically free her. And you have to this day, based on these allegations, you have Leslie Wexner's lawyers and his representatives saying that Mr. Wexner and his wife, he subsequently married. In fact, uh, Jeffrey Epstein did the prenuptial agreement when when Leslie Wexner uh, uh, finally married. To this day, for the record, they claim that neither he nor his wife were aware at all of any of the actions that took place on his estate involving this young woman. And I, as a reporter, find that extremely hard to believe. I had wanted to go and investigate the 
security guards, because I do believe there is likely evidence in security logbooks and so forth that would show that this uh, particular incident took place in which this woman was held for multiple hours on the estate. I absolutely believe that the actions that took place on Leslie Wexner's estate, reports would end up in his lap, that he knew exactly what was taking place, particularly if an incident happened of this magnitude that he would be alerted about this. And, right. and to this day, all of these years later, his side claims that they were not aware of this. Now, on top of that, you have a very troubling report that, in fact, the New York Times published that talked about Jeffrey Epstein would use, would basically portray himself as a modeling scout for Victoria's Secret. and Which is so yeah. lame, you know? Yeah. I mean, you don't need to be a genius to come up with that one. Uh, we know, for instance, of a, a particular incident that took place at a hotel in Santa Monica, California. Right. That young Baywatch actress, right? Yes. Uh, Alicia Arden, who did contact the Santa Monica police. I looked at the police reports and so forth. It is clear that Epstein was using his association to Wexner at the time to gain access to women that he would pretend that he was inspecting them for possible inclusion in the uh, Victoria's Secret catalog and so forth. And in fact, Jeffrey Epstein, in the, involving the case of Alicia Arden, you know, molested her. Right. He actually said to her, I'm going to manhandle you. Yes. Which is weird. Yes. That is a weird thing for someone to say. Now, now um, I, I just want to finish, if I could, yeah. uh, Lisa. The point I'm making here is high-ranking individuals at the Limited and at Victoria's Secret were informed, at least two executives were informed of Epstein's actions oh, in, in, involving uh -huh. these women, which I think is highly significant. And there is no doubt in my mind that this information ended up with Les Wexner, which begs the question, why would Wexner continue to allow Epstein to basically be his power of attorney right. to deal in his business uh, dealings when these allegations were being made about Jeffrey Epstein? Right. Yeah. And Leon Black, why did he stay affiliated? We've just been reading about him in the New York Times. He's a very powerful fund owner, Apollo. And yeah. he's now saying, I regret my association, but he stayed affiliated with him long after Jeffrey Epstein got that legal slap on his hand. That was a sham of justice in Palm Beach. What is amazing, and I detail this in the book, is that after the Florida slap on the wrist from the uh, non-prosecution agreement that was basically worked out with Alexandra Costa and Barry Kreischer, uh, down in Florida, you had Epstein returning to New York, where he then entered into brand new business relationships, personal and business contacts with people ranging from Bill Gates to, as you said, Leon Black, uh, the head of Apollo Global Management here in New York, scientists, uh, some of the world. At MIT and at, at, at Harvard. Harvard. Right, yeah. exactly. I mean, it basically became an absolute who's who, including the likes of former President Clinton and so forth, that Epstein surrounded himself, you know, in the years after the Florida non-prosecution agreement with incredibly smart and successful men. And this, again, goes back to that ability from his early days of growing up in Coney Island 
believed that he never changed. His trick was that he was a smooth talker. He was this Coney Island rough speaking guy who was nicknamed Bear in high school, who was a bit of a you know math nerd who tried to have a pretty girl in junior high school. As I report in the book, only years later would he stalk this woman. Yeah. Her boyfriend at the time threatened to beat up Jeffrey Epstein if Jeffrey didn't leave her alone. We detail that in the book. We detail the fact that when he was a teacher at Dalton Private School, that former classmates have told us about a specific young student, a female student that was targeted by Jeffrey Epstein. It is just a sad, sad history of his, not only his criminality, but the fact that so many smart and successful people, business leaders and scientists and so forth, would allow Jeffrey Epstein to do business with them. And now all of them, Leon Black, Wexner and the like, all now say in retrospect, oh, you know, it was a mistake. A to terrible have, lapse of judgment. It, it, yeah. Exactly. To have dealt with him. Yeah. Okay. So I have a theory for you. Yes. I grew up in the New York private school world. And there were no teachers in any of the schools my brothers or I attended who did not have, at the very least, a BA. Most had master's degrees, and some even had PhDs. Donald Barr, who was the headmaster at Dalton, who hired Jeffrey Epstein, was very strict. He sent his own sons to Horace Mann because Dalton was too woo woo. He was a strict guy. Why in the world? Did he hire this huckapoo shirt wearing, fur coat wearing, inappropriate college dropout to teach math and physics at his very serious high school? You know, we devote a chapter in the book to his time at Dalton. Again, this is a guy who did not finish the two colleges that he attended in New York. He left high school early, finished at age 16, yet he was hired to teach students of some of the wealthiest celebrities in New York at the Dalton School. And Donald Barr, father of William Barr, yes, brought Epstein in because at the time they were wanting to open themselves up for kind of avant-garde teaching. They wanted to expand their horizons. They wanted to bring in not the cookie cutter type of teachers that they previously had. And again, you have to remember that this was 1974. There was a political revolution going on at the time. Donald Barr, who had been a former intelligence officer during the Second World War and so forth, he kept the school very strict. Yeah, I think this is fishy. Yeah, girls couldn't wear mini skirts and so forth and jeans were out. But he would allow teachers into the classrooms that were not of the mold that they previously had there. You had Robert Redford's kids going there. You had Anderson Ed- Cooper, and it was there. Jennifer Gray, the daughter Jennifer of uh, Joel Calvin Gray. Klein. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. No, yeah. no. Yeah. It was that way. But that's a little weird. And then the next thing is. I think because Donald Trump was such a good friend of Epstein's, this is just my personal theory. As a matter of fact, one of my kids has said there are more photographs of Donald Trump with Epstein and Galen than there are of Trump with Barron. They were close, obviously. And we have to get to Galen, too. But my God, Bill Barr, I think, is protecting Donald Trump because of 
something with his father and Epstein. I can't prove it, of course, but that's my thought because nothing else makes sense. If the story really came out, really, really, truly fully came out, it would hurt people all over the world. It would hurt the Clintons as well as the Trumps. I mean, it's a bipartisan thing, but I I just can't help thinking that. Well, one of the most troubling things in, in the book that I report is information that Jeffrey Epstein turned over to the FBI at the time of the Florida non-prosecution agreement. No one knows to this day, because the information has been redacted, what Jeffrey Epstein told the FBI at that time. Now, again, Alexander Acosta raised the question, was Jeffrey Epstein part of the intelligence network? There's no question that Jeffrey Epstein turned over specific information to the FBI that has yet to become public. And what that information is, whether, you know, who it involves at a high-ranking level, to me, could basically explain all of this. There's still so much we don't know. We haven't seen the grand jury testimony, which they've refused to release in the Florida case. Who do you think killed Jeffrey Epstein? Well, you know, it, it, it would make a much better book, and I probably would sell more copies of the book if I talked about— You, know, you showed the pictures of his cell. A, ge- was, a gentleman ugh. coming in uh, with a wire and strangling uh, Jeffrey Epstein in the middle of the night. Unfortunately, the reporting and the evidence thus far goes in the other direction. It shows that it's very likely that Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide. And I point out in the book, based on incredible reporting, that one of my colleagues, Philip Messing, who had been a legendary police reporter at the New York Post for many years, I had asked Phil to specifically look into Epstein's final days in jail and so forth. And not only did we learn as we report in the book, that there had been a previous time that Jeffrey Epstein spent under suicide watch um, right. at the MCC. This, right. this had not been made public until it was published in my book. So basically, you have a situation where, and we know this from two uh, inmate companions who both said Jeffrey Epstein was under this initial suicide watch. He was then moved back into his cell where the incident occurred with the former cop who was the cellmate. That was the second suicide incident. Jeffrey Epstein spent two times under suicide watch. And then instead of keeping him under suicide watch, they return him to his cell where, of course, as we know, he was found hanging from a noose. Now, we report in the book that the night before Jeffrey Epstein was heard by another inmate cutting up bed sheets. We know for a fact that the guards uh, on this particular night were off sleeping. They did not do their shifts. They are obviously under indictment and we're still waiting for that trial to take place. There's no question that there were severe incompetence on the Mm -hmm. part of the Bureau of Prisons and the MCC to keep Jeffrey Epstein alive. And of mm-hmm. course, this is all under Bill Barr's watch of course uh, that, it that is. Jeffrey Epstein ended up dead. I also point out in the book that the medical examiner's investigation did not go the full distance because of allegations made that the medical examiner in New York wanted a clear and concise decision made before she went off on vacation. And, huh. and so... Kristen Roman, who was the medical examiner who actually performed the autopsy on Jeffrey Epstein and was going to launch a deeper investigation after the initial findings uh, that were made where they 
couldn't come to a, a precise decision on his death, that she was told to come up with a quick conclusion because the medical examiner was going off on summer holiday. And so you have this, this series of just uh, absolute fallops uh, yeah. that occurred involving how Jeffrey Epstein died, the, the fact that we believe a full and proper investigation was not taking place. The Justice Department kind of washed their hands of it after the medical examiner basically said it was a finding of suicide. We spoke to Mark Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein's his brother, brother yeah. who said that when he learned that his brother was dead, he believed absolutely that uh, the first thing he thought was that it had to be a homicide because he did not believe that his brother would take his own life. Okay, so that's one thing. Tell us, and I think you broke this story too in your yes. book, that Epstein had a girlfriend that he called from jail. That is correct. Karina, right? Karina Shuliak, yes. She's from Belarus. She, in fact, had been with Jeffrey Epstein in Paris for a couple of days before his flight to Teterboro Airport, where he was, At of which course, he was arrested, was arrested yeah. uh, secretly, was not aware that he was going to be apprehended. The plane landed on the tarmac. And as I point out in the book, authorities from several agencies converged on the plane. Epstein was, uh, of course, arrested. She was not on that flight. She had been with him in Paris a few days before. She did not return to New York. With him. However, Jeffrey Epstein spoke to her the night of his death. Uh, She is technically the last person we believe uh, who he spoke to. And incredibly, there has not been an official investigation into, and and we've spoken to her lawyer. Uh, She has not, from the conversation that we had with the lawyer, she has not been officially asked to explain what Jeffrey Epstein told her in his, what turned out to be his final phone call. Yeah, that's ridiculous. This is what I'm saying. It feels like Bill Barr is impeding this investigation in so many ways. Well, there, Bill Barr only has one mission right now, and that is to keep Ghislaine Maxwell alive right. uh, in the Brooklyn lockup where she is um, and to get her to trial this summer in, in New York. I totally don't believe that that will ever happen. I don't believe that Bill Barr wants that to happen because she can name anybody. She can name names. Oh, there's no question. I have to say this. Surprisingly, out of all of this, where you have a predator of Jeffrey Epstein's uh, magnitude, like un- unlike any predator we've ever covered before, it was such a difficult book to write. When you go through the police reports and the court records and so forth, you find that uh, Jeffrey Epstein committed at least three dozen rapes of young women. He spent $35 million of his own money in paying for his massages, which were basically sexual sessions right. with, with minors and so forth. And despite all of this, despite the names that have been linked to him, Leon Blacks, the, the Wexners, Prince Andrew, Prince Andrew, and President Trump, Dershowitz, Trump, Dershowitz uh, Clinton, and so forth, yeah, you have the government who basically is afraid to go anywhere near this investigation. The right. only person, <laughs> it's amazing, the only person who is rolled up their sleeves, who said, I am going to take this on, is the attorney general 
in the Virgin Islands, a woman named Denise George. Right. Because she is investigating his estate, which was filed in the Virgin Islands where he had his home. She has been doing a proper investigation for several months now, and she is attempting to get people on the record. They're taking a fine-tooth comb to looking at his finances. They're going through his estate and so forth. And it is unbelievable with the power of the U.S. government that the only true investigation into Epstein that's going on right now is happening with this woman down in the Virgin Islands. Now, of course, the SDNY, the Southern District of New York, did the right thing. They charged Maxwell on several counts. They're following that up, and it would not surprise me if they make other arrests of some of the co-conspirators, the women that worked under her as lieutenants uh, down in Florida who were given immunity at the time of Jeffrey's Florida deal. That immunity is not covered under the in the SDNY investigation that is taking place now into Maxwell. And if anything, bringing in any of those women could bolster the case against Maxwell. Barry, you've spent a lot of time thinking about these reprehensible people. You've spent a lot of time thinking about their motives and so on. And we know that when Jeffrey Epstein met Maxwell, she was kind of down and out. Her father had just committed suicide. Her social standing was, you know, the thing on which she built her social standing was gone. And he had been a tax cheat, among other things. But why did she start sexually abusing these girls? Well, hopefully she will uh, be asked that question on the stand. What I do have in the book, you know, and I do hope that uh, prosecutors will call Christina Oxenberg, Uh, who had been her friend, because we quote, we quote Oxenberg in the book as Mm -hmm. saying that at one point, Maxwell told her that she was desperate to marry Jeffrey Epstein. And Maxwell said, Jeffrey Epstein is insatiable. I cannot sexually satisfy him. And because I can't, I have turned to bringing in basically young girls for him. Reinforcements to give him his necessary orgasms, his daily and nightly orgasms. Exactly. And Oxenberg was revolted by these Mm -hmm. comments. She quickly tried to change the subject. It was overwhelming for her to hear this. Now, you have to think, why would Maxwell, basically, as I call them in the book, they were the predatory Bonnie and Clyde. It, It started very early on. It started within two years of the two of them getting together in early 1992 after, as you said, Maxwell's father, the press baron in England, fell overboard his yacht, which Ghislaine said was, in fact, a murder. Ghislaine had been daddy's little girl. He had called his yacht the uh, Lady uh, Ghislaine. She was very much like the way Donald Trump views his daughter Ivanka. Robert Mm -hmm. Maxwell viewed Ghislaine in the same way. They were above and beyond, more important than their siblings. They could never do wrong. And when Robert Maxwell died, Ghislaine was just completely dysfunctional when she came to New York. And at the time, Jeffrey Epstein had all this money, but he needed connections in New York society. Ghislaine needed money, and she had connections. And so there was a bonding of the two of them together. And as, uh, in fact, Oxenberg said, these were two grifters. They tried to 
outgrift each other and went down this horrible road together. There's no question that had Ghislaine not been in his life, the, the abundance and, and the grooming and the basically what had become a business of the recruitment of these young girls would not have taken place. She was a mastermind. She very much ran this trafficking business like an actual business. She had, as I said, these four yeah. these four other women who acted as lieutenants who were called uh, potential co-conspirators by the uh, Florida in- investigators. It really was an operation. Databases were set up. Girls would recruit other girls and so forth. And Elaine not only was in charge of all this, the worst thing of it was that she herself would prey on these young women. And that is really, in a nutshell what all this came down to with the recruitment of these young girls, because they viewed Ghislaine as, I won't necessarily say a mother figure, but something of a, of a sister figure in the sense that she would protect them. That right. she, she would, that these An girls- An older woman who, yeah. who purported to right. yes. be interested in their well-being. Their well-being, uh, they would offer scholarship, they would offer mentorship and so forth. But instead of being a protector to these young girls- Ghislaine was as much a predator as Jeffrey Epstein. And that is the sad footnote on this uh, horrible story, is that she didn't just wash her hands of the recruitment. She, in fact, took place, as will be spelled out, as has been spelled out by prosecutors in her indictment. She took part in the sexual abuse of these minors. I must say, Barry, I appreciate all the work and the reporting that you've done to put this book together It makes me a little envious that you did something productive during the pandemic. I certainly, well, I learned how to bake a banana cake. But you know what? It is a very, it's hard to read. It's hard to read. And I don't mean that as uh, to dissuade people from reading it. It's an important chapter of what's happening now with Donald Trump and the way that women have been demeaned and used and actually emotionally tortured. I feel like as a mother of daughters that this is, it's it's tough stuff. You have some of the victims on the record talking about how they had to pleasure his friends and his associates and this poor Virginia having to go have sex with Prince Andrew when she didn't want to and so on. Did he blackmail his famous friends? Is is that part of his operation that he took pictures in every room at all times and 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 threatened his friends because the girls were underage? Yes. Uh, not only were there uh, still photographs, but there is video evidence. In fact, I'm the sure. last chapter I devote in the book is to a, a former uh, Florida law enforcement official who uh, claims, uh, and it's it's an unbelievable story, he's now living in Russia. He claims that one of the detectives on the Florida case was so sickened with the outcome of that case that Jeffrey Epstein got a slap on the wrist that this detective turned over video evidence, video documentation of Epstein with other men in the abuse of women to this man who we interviewed in the book, who is now in Russia, who is sitting on this treasure trove of uh, video evidence. And he claims that the FBI is aware of this video evidence. But as I said, going back to this kind of hands-off sense of the, while the Maxwell investigation continues, the government is afraid to go near Jeffrey Epstein. 
Why aren't they digging into this possible video evidence? Why are they not doing a better job of taking a look at the medical examiner's findings and doing a new investigation into his death? Yeah. It's unbelievable. Why is this guy in Russia, by the way? He is in Russia because he left he left the United States and that is where he feels comfortable living. And so it, it also comes into play whether Russian officials have access or have seen some of this uh, video documentation and whether Donald Trump is on it. I mean, we raised that point in the uh, in the final chapter of this book. You know, when I was doing the Trump book, <laughs> oh my uh, God. so many People that I spoke to from the Florida days and so forth in New York said, you know, you can write a book about Donald Trump, but shouldn't you really be doing a book about Jeffrey Epstein? Because there is so much there to uncover. And so when I was finished, right at the end of the Trump book, right before all the I, president's women, all the uh-huh. president's women, Donald Trump and the making of a predator that I wrote with uh, co-author Monique Alfaze, a, a, a New York journalist who now lives in Paris, Jeffrey Epstein had died and it just became clear to me that uh, immediately after that book, I had to start on the Epstein book uh, mm-hmm. based on the sources that I had developed while investigating Trump. And, you know, the, I raise a lot about Donald Trump's involvement with Jeffrey Epstein. I, I, I want to read something, if, if I can, very quickly from the book about Donald Trump, because I think this is extremely telling. Sure. This is an interview that we conducted for the book with someone who was one of Jeffrey Epstein's closest confidants. And according to this person's account, they were told by Jeffrey Epstein in 2016, and this is a quote, Mm -hmm. if people knew what I know about Trump and Clinton, they'd canceled the election. Epstein told the person that he, quote, he stopped hanging out with Trump for a specific reason. And before they're falling out, Epstein claims, claimed to this person that Donald Trump had visited his office ab- about financial matters. Epstein also recounted a story about one conversation he had with Trump. Jeffrey asked Trump, how come you sleep with so many women when you are married? And Trump said, because it's so wrong, according to this person's huh. account. Oh, wow. So, you know, it makes you wonder, what did Jeffrey Epstein have on Donald Trump? What did Jeffrey Epstein have at the time of the 2016 election? that he felt that uh, if that information had come out, that it would affect the uh, election. Yeah. And now here we are four, four here years are. later. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's quite an investigation. Barry, do you think Ghislaine Maxwell will be alive at the eve of her trial? I, I do think that. I, I mean, I want to have confidence in the Bureau of Prisons that they're not going to uh, screw this up the way they did with Jeffrey Epstein's incarceration at the MCC. And, and hopefully out of the indictment of the two prison guards at night, who both were you know, mysteriously sleeping uh, yes. w- when they were supposed to be doing the rounds, and Jeffrey Epstein was taking his life, I do hope that we will learn more you know, about that. But I, I just see a, a huge reluctance on the government's part to basically turn this stone over and look yeah. under this rock because, you yeah. know, 
what they're going to find under the rock is going to be horrific. And they don't want to go there. And uh, certainly in Trump's Justice Department, he doesn't want to go there. This is a guy who says now that uh, when he made the comments to New York Magazine that Jeffrey Epstein was a great guy and uh, they Mm -hmm. were buddy-buddy, now Donald Trump says that uh, Jeffrey Epstein put him up to all that and he just did it as a favor And in fact, he never liked the guy. Well, you know, I beg to differ based on the evidence we show in the book. uh, They were thick as thieves. Yeah. Uh, In terms of they once held a party uh, at Mar-a-Lago, 50 women and just the two of them, uh, Donald Trump and uh, Jeffrey Epstein. They were the only men uh, at this party with uh, 50 young women. There's one story after another that would make you uncomfortable involving Donald Trump's involvement with uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Well, as we know, he wished Ghislaine well as president after she was arrested. So the takeaway from your book the spider inside the criminal web of Jeffrey Epstein and Glenn Maxwell is that maybe this investigation will be, as you say, somebody or some team of investigators and prosecutors from the SDNY will find out the truth and we will all be the better for it. And because, Barry, we are talking, as I said earlier, on election week, and we are still standing. And as far as I know, looting has not taken place anywhere in in New York. There are things to be grateful for. And you gave us a really good list. And I'm wondering if we can talk about that right now. Sure. Go, Go ahead. That was one of the most fun things that I've had that, that I've done in 40 years of reporting. So, oh, well, I'm <laughs> glad to hear it. And I, I really appreciate that. I think people feel sometimes when I ask them to do this little exercise, they say, oh, really? And then they end up really enjoying it and it, it becomes something of a habit. So maybe that'll happen with you. Your number one is watching the animated Peanuts, Charlie Brown, Halloween, and Christmas shows with your daughter. You know, she is uh, a a teenager. Uh, She's in high school, and she and her friends live in their own world of uh, TikTok and Mm -hmm. everything else. But I managed to connect with her on the level of Charlie Brown, Snoopy, and Peanuts. And and I find it so enjoyable because it was something that I I watched as a a kid, and she uh, gets a little enjoyment out of it. You know, so to see her watching that now, not that she's watching it now or didn't watch it with me this Halloween. I had to watch it on my own, but... <laughs> you know the Linus in the Great Pumpkin Patch. You know, waiting, yes, waiting no. for the, the Great Pumpkin to appear. But you know, you hope to connect with your kids, and that was something that uh, I enjoyed. So I love that. Actually, I love that. Number two, starting every single day, no matter where you are, with a visit to Starbucks. There you go. You know, starting the day is, you know, the most important meal of the day, as they say. And, and, yeah, and, right. and for me, it's, you know, a Trenta uh, uh, black iced tea with extra ice. And, you know, it's like, I got to have it. I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't sit down. I can't make a phone call. I can't start writing. I can't do anything until uh, I get my fix. Oh, I get you know, that. You know. But is Trenta, does that have to do with like three times the normal amount of caffeine? No, it's just a giant. It's the biggest, you know, the biggest. Uh, it's a terrine of iced tea. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, good. I won't tell you what I need in the afternoon to go no, back. No, you and do. Next, but no, that's number three sure. are your dirty martinis. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, yes. Yeah. 
Now, you say you go to journalist bars. Tell me one, like Runyon's, or, or is that still open? Runyon's is not open. And I, Elaine's, I, of course, is gone. Elaine's, Elaine's was a great writer's bar. What exists today, and again, with COVID, of course, everything is shut down. Uh, but right. maybe one day we will be able to return to the life that we had. And of course, uh, we, we, we say it knowing tragedies that have taken place across our country and, and the sadness that, that every day all of us... Uh, Myself included, have uh, lost people that we've that we've known to this. But uh, you know, hopefully one day down the road we'll be able to return to some of the things that we enjoyed doing before this. And for me, uh, one of those things is sitting around with some former colleagues and, and telling tales that seem to get better uh, <laughs> every year with age mm-hmm. at a place. In New York, very very few writers' bars that are left. Uh, one place used to be the Lion's Head. The Lion's uh, Head, yes, which, downtown. Uh, which is down in Greenwich Village um, off of Sheridan Square, uh, which is now called the Kettle of Fish. Um, and uh, it's a beautiful bar. It's a very low ceiling. It is in a um, historic village um, building there. It's magnificent. And it's it's just a nice place to go and talk shop, you know? Yeah, listen, seeing friends in person is something that we will treasure when we get to do it again. Yes. Um, number four, going to the annual Antiquarian Book Fair at the Armory on Park Avenue. Yes, that is... Uh, uh, Are you a collector of antiquarian I'm a collector antiquarian of antiquarian books? first editions, and I love yeah. mo- I love modern literature. And you see the dust jackets are just so striking. What I love about this fair is you have the world's best booksellers come together, and you see the most beautiful books that are out in the world today all under one roof. And it's just, you know, it's just, uh, if you love books, if you if you love writing, if you love literature, walk around and you just uh, take enjoyment in uh, in, seeing, in seeing books, you know. It, I mean, I'm very old school. I, I mean, I work on a, on a laptop, but, you know, if I could, I would be working back on my old typewriter. A manual. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm, 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 I mean, podcasts and all of this is is it's the new world we live in, you know. But I, I'd much rather sit and talk to somebody face to face, you know. Yeah, of course. You know, in terms of reading a book, I mean, I'm listen. I'm happy that people are buying Spider and eBooks and Kindle and all that. But nothing to me uh, takes the place of cozying up with a book and uh, exactly and, and, and cracking it open and uh, and reading it. So you know. You're talking to a like-minded person. I don't have a Kindle. I like to read a book. I like to flag the pages and so on. And that takes us to number five for Barry, which is pulling out a reporter's notebook and putting paper and pencil together and going out and doing some research and reporting. Yeah, I mean, to be able to do the same thing that I did as a young journalist in college, to be able to just sit down with someone and to pull out uh, my reporter's notepad and a pencil and to have them, you know, trust me to tell their story is something that I truly appreciate Mm -hmm. in life. To, To be able to tell someone's story and to have them trust you, there's nothing better than that. And that's what I've tried to do for 40 years. And the fact that I'm still doing it, I'm just thankful for it. Well, it can be the most wonderful career, I agree, because when you are a journalist, you can talk to people whose lives fascinate you. And one minute you're a crime investigator and the next you're an expert in ballet or whatever. It's 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 fantastic. Well, 
You have been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Barry Levine, author of The Spider, Inside the Criminal Web of Jeffrey Epstein and Galen Maxwell, published by Crown. This podcast has been produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Michael Port. Espresso Arucci, Sam Haft, and Boko Haft. You can find links to everything we discussed, including that picture of the Trump children, on my webpage at lisabernbach.com. You can follow Barry Levine at his website, barrylevine.com. Is that not right? Uh, it's actually barrylevineauthor.com. I'm sorry. That's it okay. is. It is. I see that right yeah. now. Also, he's on Twitter at Barry Scoop King, so you can follow him there. And for all the rest of you, I wish you a good day, a good week. Act natural, wear a mask. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. 